0: Arms of Christ, my Lord. As you can tell, we continue on in the Gospel of John, looking at uh, the rest of chapter 4. And what we encounter here is, is Christ confronting and fronting... I don't know about you, but I find it painful to read a book that has no depth, especially uh, when you read it all the way, hoping it will get better. That's my problem. I never quit on a book and keep going. The plot never thickens, really. The plot is barely existent and painfully predictable and boring. And I say this to my own potential harm, the definition of some Hallmark movies, at least from a guy's point of view. We know it's going to happen. Nothing changes. It's always the same. Or what about conversing with someone who lacks depth? The conversation stays on the surface. The interests of their life are so basic and trivial, it's hard to connect. What captures their attention is quickly seen as a waste of time to the thinking individual. And sadly, too many people have the same kind of shallow interest or connection to Jesus. They're not interested in digging deeper or knowing Him sincerely, they're content with the surface components and the emotional moments. How many athletes in their interviews make a cursory reference to Christ that exposes their complete shallowness and possible lack of real faith? I remember listening to one and they kept talking about the adversity they saw in the game they played, for which they get paid millions of dollars, or the little bumps in their luxury lives, missing the reality of God's grand purpose because. They want the supposed trinkets of a mastered wizard that they can approach at their whim and who serves their legacy. This same self serving entertainment style of connection was a reality for Christ as well as he walked on earth. So as he moves out of Samaria, and remember, he's coming from Judea and he's working his way to Galilee. He's going through Samaria. If we move through what was the bulk of chapter four as he continues that journey, He comments on them, the people from his home region, and he makes it very clear that they are a shallow audience. It says in 43, now after two days, he departed thence. In other words, after he he stayed in Samaria, if you remember the Samaritan woman had come to the well, he was resting at the well. He opens up a dialogue with her, leads that dialogue in a way that confronts her sin and and exposes her need. Uh, She responds to the truth of who he is. Uh, goes back to her town, shares that truth with that community. They come out in, in, in masses, you would say, from a town, and, and they come out to see him, and then they ask him to stay and teach for two days. And here he is in a town in Samaria, and they're responding to who he is, that he's God, that he's the Messiah, that he's come to redeem. And so after two days, he's going to finish what he started. He was going home, so he leaves that town and went into Galilee, And then it's a, a bit of an aside that John gives us. is for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. And then the conversation shifts to his response. Then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. And the narrative in the chapter, as I just mentioned so far, has been all Samaria. It's been a very fruitful ministry amongst the Samaritans at Sychard. I want to be specific because later on in his ministry, he comes into Samaria and the response is negative. And so here is a very specific uh, reception of Christ that links to who he is, what he's going to do, the fact that he's the savior of the world. And now he's closed that ministry off and he's finishing the journey home. And it's in this journey home and in the walk and the lead up to The narrative, the story of the nobleman's son and the healing is where John references how Jesus knew that there was no honor for a prophet in their hometown. This comment is repeated in all three of the Gospels, yet all the other Gospels have it very specifically related to when he is in Nazareth, his actual hometown, not just a home region. And so it's interesting because John highlights this comment in reference to him entering into The region, and both of these occurred, and we have to wonder why is John picking the time when he entered into the region of Galilee versus the other Gospels, which specifically deal with the town of Nazareth. When you go into Mark, he he deals with how they want to kill him uh, when he's there in Nazareth. But but John highlights this thought, this reality, as he walks in, and and why is that? Well, the Galileans. And really, the Galileans kind of represent Jews as a whole. And so what John is actually trying to do is show that the Jewish population, as a general principle, were not like the Samaritans at all. He's bringing a comparison. He's showing that Christ was just in Samaria and that these Galilean individuals, the people that should know Jesus the best, that have seen him grow up, that have seen him live life through 30-plus years, that they are not like the Samaritans in Sychar. Uh, D.A. Carson notes this, In Samaria, Jesus had just enjoyed his first unqualified, unopposed, and open-hearted success. Now he returns to his own people, and consistent with the pattern developed so far, the response is at best ambiguous. The Samaritans honored Jesus for who he is and his eternal work. This is what they said at the close. We have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. They sought and saw the Redeemer. That is not how the Jews and specifically the Galileans, the home province of Christ, respond. Their connection and enthusiasm goes back to the sign seen in Jerusalem. If you go all the way back to chapter 2, after he cleans the temple out, knocks everything over. He stays for the feast. And during that time, he does a host of miracles, signs. And, and John 2, 33-35, talking about that time in Jerusalem, says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. In other words, what he encountered in Jerusalem were a bunch of thrill seekers. People saying, "Wow, this guy's doing miracles. He's doing uh, magic tricks." Is how they would almost view this. It's it's amazing, and that's who the Galileans are. They're like an audience looking to be entertained or to be benefited. And what we see in this this narrative is two things. One, how different. The people in Sychar were compared to people in Christ's home region and by expansion, all of the Jews because he left Judea because there's going to be resistance and opposition building up against him. There's going to be conflict. And so what we find is that they're welcoming him, um, not as the Messiah, but as their local homegrown healer. And I use the word wizard or genie in the Bible, someone who can do things for them. Their interest in Jesus is really the fascinating signs he does, or as we'll see as the story develops, the political potential they saw in him. As he starts feeding people, as he starts doing these, these miracles, that they start saying, well, if, if we have a guy that can feed everybody, well, then he could definitely lead us against the Romans. That takes care of a huge supply chain issue. We can, we can conquer the world idea. They do not honor him as Lord and Savior they honor him only as he serves their purposes. And in case anyone's missing it, the whole driving point for us is, do we serve Christ for how he serves our purposes, or do we serve Christ because he's our Lord and Savior? And that's going to be the com- confrontation for this group of people, and it's a confrontation for us as well, because they sought a temporal leader, they sought a magician, a wizard, someone who could do what they wanted, take care of their needs, take care of their illnesses. They sought someone who could serve their purposes and miss seeing the Redeemer. Now, I remember coming back from India uh, last year. This is March of 2023, and, and uh, I've just finished up. Uh, well, I finished up my part because I'm in Guatemala. Theron's going to finish out the last week, but we've been teaching a, a same kind of topic, a college course in India. And so from 9.30 to three nights a week, we've been teaching uh, people that are in Israel, Myanmar, India. And so we have a whole class of students there uh, teaching a course on a healthy church. But I remember coming back from India, so this was last year, March of 23, and I remember telling Heather this. I said it was refreshing to be there. And I never thought that would be my response. When Cody and I went over there, we were visiting our missionary in India, we wanted to connect. He wanted me to preach his graduation. We were going to see, uh, put eyes on it because we'd love to, to have all of our missionaries visited. But we were there and, and I came back and it was very refreshing. And no, the food is not my cup of tea. Uh, I came back from that one and both of us were sick. Uh, to be honest with you, the tea was often not my cup of tea uh, either either. The schedule kept by Cody and I, I would say, was exhausting. Uh, car travel from Bangalore to Kerala, if I was selling it, I would call it exhilarating. If I was describing it, I would call it terrifying. Um, I, I closed my eyes because, um, I'll tell you what, Dr. Joseph could be in a derby race where they're all racing against each other because he doesn't flinch, but we were four cars deep, and we passed people on their shoulder. Um, and I looked over at Cody and this is sad. I'm like, well, if I go, at least he goes with me. That's the that's thought I had. And then I had to close my eyes cause I, you know, I didn't want to digress to like crying in the car. So, um, prayerful, that would be how the better way to say that. Um, so why was it a refreshing trip? And this is why there was an obvious hunger for the word of God for it to be taught and for them to grow. And I've traveled around the world in missions, do a lot of work in Central America, obviously we'll be there again. And what I've found most of the time when I travel on mission work, it feels that the hunger for the word is secondary to the hunger for the wallet. And so being in India was this refreshing time compared to oftentimes how it feels. It feels more like Galilee sometimes than it does saikar which makes me think this, How are we listening and engaging with the amazing truth of a Savior and Lord? Are we shallow, concerned with our social calendar and needs, or do we resemble Sychar and clearly see and worship the Redeemer of the world? That's all the intro is Jesus enters in. It's not even the the full narrative of this story, but it's the point that John's trying to make. He's building a, a large comparison not to compare people against people, but to understand what does it mean to be a true audience, be a true believer, and what does it mean to be shallow? And he has them as the shallow audience. Jesus knows there's no honor for him in his hometown. And then we read a response that sounds like they're welcoming, but they're welcoming in a shallow way. These are people that are coming to Christ because he will do for them what they want. I have a cold and he'll take care of it. I feel sick, he'll take care of it. I need bread, he'll make it. He'll solve all my physical problems. And it's the context of a shallow audience that sets the stage for us to encounter what I call a desperate audience. This is verses 46 through 50. This is the, the heart and soul of the narrative. This is the, the, driving, the driving story that carries the point. And so we find that Jesus comes into Galilee again, into Cana of Galilee, which we will remember Going back to chapter 2, uh, we have the miracle of water and to wine at the wedding. And so he's in Canaan now, and it says, And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And just, I'll mention this multiple times, 16 to 20 miles away. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. And so we we recognize that this man has a dire situation, a physical situation. And if you're a parent, you understand the the pain and agony that would come into someone's heart and mind as their son lies dying, what they know is going to end in death. And so then Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe, which seems a bit harsh to us, the reprimand that takes place. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down. Ere my child die, Jesus saith to him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And if you're highlighting anything, and the man believed is something you want to mark, to see a shift. And what we find here is a Jewish nobleman. He is working most likely for King Herod Antipas, who is here desperate to find help for his son. The boy is sick to the point of dying, and this is not hyperbole or exaggeration. This is not, I'm gonna die of hunger when we've missed one meal. This is not, I feel so sick, I'm dying because we have a sinus infection and we don't feel uh, good in our stomach. This This is not exaggeration at all. This man's son was dying, he had a fever, there was nothing that could be done. And it actually all describes how the child is. So I don't wanna take anything away from how desperate this situation is, but it shows you the desperate audience. And so he journeys to Cana, which is 16 to 20 miles from Capernaum, to petition Jesus for a healing. He wants a benefit. Yet the fascinating is not on this man's mind. I want you to see a little different. They're a shallow community that wants Christ to do for them to entertain them, but also to benefit them. And here is a desperate audience. This is a man in the context of a shallow audience who is desperate. And so he has lost any desire for the fascinating, and he's fixated on his precious son getting well. And what is clear is that a desperate audience, their physical needs are the urgent priority. That is what is on his mind. He cannot get anything else out or in He still has the local perspective. He sees Jesus as a supplier of his temporal or physical needs. He proves that he has an off view of Christ because he assumes that Jesus would need to be on premise to heal his son. Please come with me and heal my son, which is going to contrast to the other uh, gospel accounts, there's an account of a centurion, and, and some critics of the Bible want to compare these two stories and make them the same. They're not two separate stories, two separate situations, but the centurion goes to Christ and says, you don't need to come. You have charge of everything. He sees Jesus as God, and what I want you to see is that this man does not see Jesus as God. He doesn't see him for who he is. He sees him for what he can do for him, but he doesn't see Christ. For who he is, but he is willing to beg, which is unique coming from one that serves King Herod and was likely used to getting whatever he wanted or requested. As one writer notes, the official in the verses before us sounds as if he is approaching Jesus out of a desperation of need, but with little thought as to who Jesus is. (coughs) And so we watch Jesus work with this request And bring a reprimand to the whole community. It says, Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. And and in your Bible, there, every time you see the word ye, or it might be translated you, in this verse, they're all plural in the Greek. Actually, whenever you see a ye anywhere in the Bible, it is a plural you. And that helps us understand what Jesus is saying. It seems harsh, right? Your son's dying. And Jesus says to him, unless you get signs and wonders, you guys won't believe. And that's the paraphrase from a little bit of Virginia style of it. So it's the you guys that's woven in there. It's, it's tied up in it. And what he's doing is Jesus takes this moment, this urgent, desperate request from a desperate audience to confront the shallowness of the people before returning to address the desperation of the Father. Now, to the Father's credit... He takes no offense at the reprimand and remains focused on one thing. And that's the other thing about a desperate audience. Their physical need is the only urgent plea. There is no pride that's tying in. He's not saying, we're not shallow. How dare you say that? Focus on what's important. He just returns to the plea. Please come down. Otherwise, my son will die. And there's interesting things we see in this man. So Christ addressed, you imagine people all around him looking for some fascinating sign. He's talked about their shallowness. Now comes a nobleman, and he's saying, my son's going to die unless you come down and heal him, unless you do something, uh, do a wonder, do a sign. And so you can imagine the audience that's sitting there, the shallow audience saying, wow, I can't wait to see what he's going to do. The man knows that his son is going to die and he, he believes that Jesus can make a difference. Yet, in his request, he shows he believes Jesus is limited in healing by distance. He thinks that this prophet has to be on premise to affect any healing. He can't be better than the prophets of old that had to be on site to take care of it. And I want us to, to get this. He's not seeing Jesus as God. And as we look at the shallow audience and even the desperate audience, they're not seeing Jesus for who he is. They are not seeing Jesus from an eternal perspective. They are missing who he is. Now, Christ shows abundant mercy and grace. It's a characteristic that describes him. But he does so by challenging the man to accurately see him, to manifest a higher level of faith And so what does Jesus say to him? He's asked Jesus to come with me. Come with me. Come heal my son. And Jesus' response to him after the reprimand on the shallowness is to say this. Go, your son will live. Come down and heal my son. He's good. Go ahead. That's what I want you to do. He does not agree to journey to the location of the son, but challenges the father to trust that he has accomplished the healing from 16-plus miles away. He's never seen what was wrong with the son. He only knows that the son is dying, sick unto death. He doesn't know exactly what's going on with the boy. He's never going to say or give a performance. Instead, he gives this man a stiff test that has no sign attached with it. He heals without giving what the shallow audience wanted to see. And we see that when he talked to the Samaritan woman, how masterful Christ is, how she throws up, I call the smokescreen, uh, the confusing religious question, and he flips around and says, hey, go get your husband, and he exposes her need, her sin. And here with the, the nobleman, and he's, he says he's approaching Christ, and we have, an, we have an audience of people who are shallow. They want to see something take place. They want to see a miracle happen. They want to see lightning come down. They want to see the sparks fly. They want to see the halo. They want to see all the things that... Physically, they're demanding because they want to see someone perform a miracle. And Christ, in his abundant mercy, uses, he uses this situation to confront a very shallow audience. And at the same moment, he deals with the desperate physical need of this man. He actually takes care of the problem, but he doesn't do it in a way that will feed the shallowness of the audience. And he does it in a way that it's going to force this man to actually move closer. He's drawing him to him. And it says, and the man believed. What did the man believe? The man believed that his son was healed. And he shows a faith that is lacking in Galilee. It's lacking in the home province of the Savior. He trusted without seeing, physically seeing, a wonder. And Jesus' challenge uh, drew from the man a growing belief and who Jesus was. John MacArthur notes, it says, "...by healing his son physically, the great physician moved to heal the father spiritually." Because true belief was the reason Jesus did his signs. It's the whole reason that John was inspired to record them. And I'm never going to let us kind of forget this, but if you go to John 20, 31, what does it say? But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name." Why in the world did Jesus heal the son? Why did he he give the father what he was desperately asking for? Why did he do it in the way that he did it? Not growing the shallowness of Galilee. Not even giving the father everything he wanted to ease his mind. But instead challenging him to faith. Well, if John was writing the signs down to help belief. Then you know for a fact that Jesus did them so that they would believe in him. Jesus desired to heal the son physically, but more importantly, he desired that they would be healed spiritually. He worked to bring them to him in saving faith. With a desperate audience, the need is the priority, and it's the only plea. It takes precedent. It is the only urgent thought. Yet what is ultimately needed is that desperate humanity urgently seek out Jesus the Messiah on his terms, not theirs that they move from just the physical onto the spiritual. The desperate audience is focused. There's no doubt about that. We couldn't fault the nobleman for lack of focus. No matter what was said, he was zeroed in on, I need help for my son. I, I am going to the one place that I think can help me. I'm going to Jesus, because so he can heal people. We know he does miracles. But that focus needs to be refined so that is connected to eternity. I put here, have we urgently sought the Messiah on his terms? Have we moved to a deep spiritual trust or based all of our trust in him on the physical side of life? Here is an unbelieving man. This is someone who's not redeemed, not saved, doesn't know who Christ is, hasn't connected the fact that he's God, that he's the savior of the world, that he's coming to die for his sins. He hasn't connected that yet. But how many in church live a faith that is only built on desperate situations? They'll come to Christ when they have a need and their faith will only remain strong if the physical need is answered. I've watched too many people who are stalwarts in the faith run into that unsolvable physical problem. And I watch how it fractures their faith because their faith was still just tied to physical in some way, shape, or form. See, Jesus solved the urgent physical need. He answered the request from a desperate audience, but he did it masterfully so that the one who was the desperate audience ultimately becomes a believing audience. Look at 51 through 53, and it says, And as he was now going down... And by the way, if you live in Capernaum and you leave Capernaum and go back, you are always going down because Capernaum is on the lake shore, which is 700 plus feet below sea level. And so it's not a north, south, east, west situation. He has gone up to Cana and he's coming back down to Capernaum. And he says, his servants met him and told him, saying, thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. When did he start getting better? And you recognize in this that there's a fever. When did the fever start breaking? We all know that, right? When we have kids that are sick and they have a fever. There's a point when the fever breaks. It doesn't mean that their temperature goes from 103 back down to whatever normal is. And I can't remember, 98.6, is that right? I don't want to make them too cold-hearted. But um, we know when the fever breaks. And so the, the father asked that question. And, and they said unto him yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. And now we're talking about belief of a different type. The man journeys home after hearing the words from Jesus. And, and to put it in perspective, Jesus tells him this around 1 p.m. That would be the seventh hour in the Jewish time scale. Again, lots of discussion. Some people make this happen at night because they want to go off of Roman time. John uses Jewish time throughout his whole Uh, gospel. So it's about 1 p.m. that he's talking to him. And then for some reason, the return did not get completed until the next day. Did he stay and listen to Jesus? Did that show how much trust he had? Did he need to rest his horses or transportation? Remember, he's not putting gas in the car and turning around and going back. Uh, Did he arrive in the early hours of the morning? Whatever the reasons, it is the following day. And he encounters servants coming to tell him that his son is getting better. He had beat the illness and was on the mend. And so the man asked, confirming what he really already was believing, that it was the same time Jesus had told him to go, your son lives. And I put here, he truly believes and so does his family and household. Uh, John MacArthur writes this, In this instance, the stunning verification of Jesus' power lifted the royal official all the way from sign-seeking unbelief to genuine saving faith. Homer Kent writes this about the family. Henceforth, they would not need miracles, nor even statements from Jesus on every matter. They could trust Jesus himself. See, such faith looks to Christ for guidance, accepts without questions everything our Lord has revealed, and leaves to him those things which we do not understand. As we trust in Christ himself... And not what he will do for us or how he will entertain us or how he'll fix our urgent problem on this world. Our faith is focused on the right object. It's resting in the right person. I put as a question here, are you part of the believing audience? Or have you remained like the region of Galilee telling Jesus he needs to prove himself to you with yet another sign, yet another logical argument, yet another way he fits your life versus realizing that you must fit his. See, John wraps up this portion of his gospel, stating in verse 54, this is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. And, and we know John chapter 2, he's done more miracles than this. We have the water to wine in Cana. We have now the miracle of the nobleman's son taking place in Capernaum, which was talked about in Canaan. But this is the the second recorded one specifically recorded so that we might believe. This was a miracle that addressed the fickle nature of those in Galilee where Jesus confronted their unbelief as he healed the nobleman's son from a distance. This is a sign that confronts how shallow we are. How much we want Jesus to serve us to take care of what we want and how we miss who he is and what he's done for us eternally. See, Jesus is journeyed back home, leaving Samaria where a town trusted in him for who he is and for what he will accomplish for them eternally, their redemption. He gets back to the home turf where he must confront an audience that is not interested in trusting him for who he is and what he will accomplish eternally for them. Instead, they're interested in seeing more neat miracles and getting solutions to their immediate and physical needs. They did not and do not desire to honor him as Lord and Savior. And now the, the question that I think we all have to ask ourselves, does that describe you? Are you a shallow audience? Seeking Jesus, even fellowshipping with his church for what it accomplishes for you? that it fills your religious requirements, that it buys you feeling good about yourself for eternity? Or you may be a desperate audience. You have a need that is urgent and one you know that you cannot resolve, and so you are desperate for God to work what you want. You are urgent for yourself and approach Him on your basis. You want Him to fix something in your life, and you think He can. You have faith, you have belief that He can do it, And then you expect him to come in and fix it and then get back out of your life once it's accomplished. You need the genie of the Bible to grant your wishes, not the God of the Bible that you can worship. But what we need is to urgently seek out Jesus the Messiah on his terms, not ours. And the kind of closing questions I have is, have you done that? Have you sought the Savior on his terms, seeking him knowing you're sinful, depraved, and bringing nothing that warrants salvation, seeking Him knowing you need salvation. What is exemplified in the Samaritan woman who comes to the well just to get water, meets the Savior of the world, has some religious questions for Him, but when she's confronted with who she is, she recognizes that she needs Him for salvation. And then I put, for those of us that do believe, are you doing that? Maybe you do know the Savior, you truly are redeemed, but you are seeking, but but how are you seeking him daily in your life? Sadly, we, speaking of believers, people that are Christian, sadly, we too easily return to being a shallow or desperate audience and forget to remain a truly believing one. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together uh, to study your word, I hope that as we work through this closing portion of chapter four, after we walk through uh, so much that centered on belief, where we see the town of Sychar and how Jesus was uh, providentially where he knew he would be, how he talked to a Samaritan woman, engaged her in conversation outside the social norms, completely counterculture to what anyone would thought to do, yet he is there reaching for her. And through that conversation, he draws her to her. She believes in him. She goes back forgetting what she has to do, any priority that she would have had for herself. She goes back, witnesses to a town that comes out, and they believe. And we move from people who see who Jesus is and and recognize that he came to heal their eternal problem onto a place that is shallow that describes us too, too easily. People who want Jesus to do for them, people who will follow Jesus as long as he serves their purpose. A reality we will walk through through almost half of John, watching how people come to Christ only uh, to walk away again, because they want Jesus to solve or do for them what they desire. That they miss seeing who Jesus is and what he has done we're grateful even in this story where he confronts a shallow audience and I hope confronts us uh, we see a family that does believe and that does trust in him, that does see him for who he is, that he's God and that he's the Messiah, that he came to die on the cross for our sins because we need someone to die on the cross for our sins. We can't solve that ourselves. We can only pay. And he has paid that price. And so I hope as we uh, finish out this day, and we go on into our week, that we'll keep in mind the reality that it's easy to become a shallow or even desperate audience, but that we have been called to be a believing audience that then sheds the light of your truth to the world around us. In your precious and holy name, amen. Let's all stand. We're going to sing the song, There is a Redeemer, and as we do, let's think about how we approach.